0: Welcome back to Kinda Christian. Today, we welcome a very special guest to the program. Have you ever wondered how someone becomes a saint in the Catholic Church? Or were you aware there's an office that investigates miraculous events as it pertains to the sainthood process? I had no idea about this. It's absolutely fascinating. And we are thrilled to welcome Monsignor Robert Sarno, a man who worked in that office for almost 40 years to guide us through the entire process and teach us how to become a saint in the Catholic Church. So join us on Kind of Christian. All right, so you are the resident King of Queens right now, and uh, you've been teaching, studying. Uh, The first thing I would love to get into here, because we're going to talk about the whole process and saints and all this, but you have been investigating these miracles for almost four decades here. Right now, on the record, are miracles happening today? Are are miracles real?
1: Oh, very real. They are very real. And there are so many more miracles, not just miracles for beatification and canonization. The whole concept of a miracle is the idea of, number one, is there a God? Does God or can God interfere in human affairs? And does he? And apart from the philosophical question, certainly the theological question answers yes to all of the three above. And basically in causes of beatification and canonization, the individual prays in a moment of need for God, for help. And God responds according to the person's faith. Um, Ask and you shall receive. Knock and it shall be open to you. So miracles are happening.
0: Okay. So... In four decades investigating miracles, and and we're talking, uh, for the average listener who has no idea, I did not know anything about this as far as it pertains to the Vatican's research on this, but you don't come to these miracles lightly. When you are exploring these miracles uh, for this process, uh, you rely on doctor's reports. I mean, this is a thorough process, right? You don't say this haphazardly. There is evidence for this stuff.
1: And it's not just a doctor's report, it's doctor's reports, medical and hospital records, uh, exams that have been performed, uh, medical exams of all different types. In other words, everything for and against the case has to be collected as evidence in a trial, in a process, and then uh, sent to Rome for study and decision. So it's a very thorough process. Uh, if, and if those elements cannot be obtained, the case can't be presented. In other words, those are requirements for a case to be bona fide, to be verifiable, Uh, In other words, they have to be verified in fact.
0: Okay. Well, let's start from the beginning then. So what is, you've been investigating these miracles as the church canonizes saints. What is a saint in the Catholic faith?
1: A saint is an individual who has followed Christ more closely. In other words, let's make a distinction here. Everyone is called to be a saint. In other words, when we close our eyes at the moment of passing from this life into the next, we hopefully open them up in the presence of God. And that is what a saint is, someone who lives in heaven with God. Whereas a canonized saint, or what we call canonizable holiness, is someone who has received special grace from God and responded to that grace and therefore can offer to the faithful a person of, who is imitatable, if you will. I like to say a saint has two eyes, the eye for imitation and the eye for intercession. The first and most important element of a saint is that he has to be imitatable. In other words, if you want it grossly, he's made the grade, he or she has made the grade there in heaven because they follow Christ more closely. And therefore the church proposes these examples of how to follow Christ more closely in various fields of life and various moments of life and various positions in life and therefore to achieve our ultimate and final goal which is to be in heaven with god forever for all eternity and so saints basically are these objects if you will of examples rather of imitation first and foremost for the faithful and so So in other words a saint is someone who god has chosen in a particular way to be an example and in order to make that person an example, offer that person special graces.
0: So when we so and just for and again, I'm gonna go I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna be very naive here and but when we talk about saints, we're talking about every time we say uh, saint Matthew or saint uh, Damien or saint there's we this is when we refer to someone like Saint Patrick, these are all canonized saints, meaning they have been officially recognized as saints by the church that 's what confers the the name Saint in front of the, their name
1: exactly. in other words, there has been some sort of process, some sort of process because we can 't be anachronistic and think the process that exists today always existed from the first days of the church. So in another words, there has to be some official recognition on the part of the church, the pastors of the church, the Pope and the bishops, that this person is indeed imitatable. Okay. Whereas anyone is allowed to pray to any individual privately. In other words, there's a difference between public devotion and private devotion. When someone is given the title of saint, it's a form of public devotion. And therefore, it's the responsibility of the pastor of the church, the Pope, to make that uh, decision and that declaration.
0: Okay. I want to come back to, because there's some theological questions I think that are interesting for Protestants and Catholics around this issue of saints, but focusing in on your career and I'm going to use a probably uh, oversimplified term of miracle researcher as part of what you've, you've been able to do, but this process, tell us about how one becomes a saint and why miracles and what, what part miracles play in this.
1: Well, probably the cause of canonization is the most democratic process in the church because it has to precisely start with the people. In other words, it is our belief that the Holy Spirit raises up in the hearts of the faithful this opinion, this public opinion, this conviction, this sense of the faithful, that this person was holy and therefore is imitatable. So in other words, it's a grassroots groundwork swell of a public opinion about the holiness of an individual either because the person died a martyr's death or because a person lived a life of heroic virtue or because a person offered his or her life uh, in love for someone else. And therefore this groundswell groundswell this uh, public opinion, we call it the sense of the faithful, a Holy Spirit working in the hearts of the faithful raising up that conviction that the person is indeed, was indeed holy and therefore imitatable. But that can always be a human reality. That can always be the effect of possibly uh, mass hysteria or um, public uh, knowledge or belief as opposed to the real sense of the faithful. In other words, a sense of the faithful as opposed to public opinion. And the way the church verifies the authenticity of this reputation of martyrdom or holiness or of the offering of one life is with the reputation of intercessory power, that second eye I spoke of, imitation and intercession. In other words, that God confirms this opinion, this public opinion, this conviction of the faithful by granting favors, signs, and even miracles through his or her intercession. So there has to be this balance between this reputation and this reputation. In other words, the authenticity of the reputation of holiness is guaranteed by the miracles.
0: Got it. Okay. So uh, again, so in layman's terms, essentially, and actually I read a piece on, I think it was Father Damien, correct me if the name is wrong, but uh, a saint who was canonized in Molokai in Hawaii, and you played an integral part in researching this, and the idea is a, a groundswell, so someone might have, there might be rumors or uh, just talk of someone who is, you know, people are getting prayer from, uh, healings are happening or whatever. How does it actually, you you see this this these rumors, these this reputation starts well. What actually is the kickstart of this process to say, you know what, we're gonna look into this. This person should be investigated. Um, how does that typically start? What's the tipping point for that?
1: Well, the petitioner of a cause, in other words, the one who requests that a cause begins, can either be an individual person, or it can be a group of people, uh, or it can be the bishop himself. In other words, the church allows any number of ways that someone can petition for a cause to start, but it's the local bishop of the diocese where the person died who can make the free decision as to whether to start the cause or not. But he cannot start a cause unless he is convinced of this reputation of holiness or of martyrdom or of offering of life and the reputation of intercessory power on the part of the servant of God. So, in other words, while the bishop of the diocese where the person died has the authority to start the cause, he's bound to start it only if there's the theological basis for the cause, which is this reputation, this double reputation, if you will. Okay. So now when we talk about why the bishop of the place where the person died, it's simply because in the overwhelming majority of cases, where the person died is usually where the person lived and where all the evidence is. Now if it were a particular case in which that would not be true, then the bishops can request the Holy See to transfer the cause to another diocese.
0: Got it. And is the overarching goal of this entire process to give the faithful, uh, yeah, just another example of God's work on earth, and you mentioned imitation. It's like it's a, is it, would it be fair to say that this is a lot of is also for encouragement? Um, as we as the causes give people hope and inspiration, and look to these people, and it just it, it's sort of edifying for the entire body. Is that overarchingly what the the cause is for?
1: I would say absolutely sure. Uh, and also to understand here that a cause of canonization is not simply for the Catholic Church, but for all humanity. In other words, in line with what you're saying, they are individuals who offer hope and. Um, encouragement in so many difficult situations of life.
0: Got it. So, Father, I was reading up on someone named Father Damien out of Hawaii, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, tell us who that was and uh, how that pertains to a, a cause for the saint. So- His
1: name was Father Damien de Wurster, and he was a Belgian missionary who, when the uh, authorities in Hawaii asked for someone to come to work with those who were suffering from Hansen's disease or what what was called leprosy Uh, and Father Damien volunteered to go to Molokai and it wasn't soon after that he went to Molokai that he contracted leprosy which of course was one of the reasons why they if you will exiled those who suffered from leprosy to the island of Molokai because it was a totally and completely lethal disease and was in all cases and uh, it was highly uh, contagious and so, unfortunately, at that time, with a lack of medical knowledge, both about Hansen's disease and other prophylaxis, if you will, how to take care of these people, that they were exiled to the island of Molokai. And so, Father Damien was the only one who volunteered to go and, uh, to Molokai to work with these patients, these residents of the island. And so, that's how Father Damien began his work and um, uh, contracted the disease and eventually died from it. Now, the interesting thing is, is that uh, Father Damien was kind of like living in obscurity, even like Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And it was Robert Louis Stevenson who made Father Damien very famous and popular. Really? By calling him Damien the Leper. Just as in the same way, it was Malcolm Muggeridge who made Mother Teresa, this woman who worked with the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, who made her famous. But other than that, these people had lived in total obscurity until for whatever reason, these individuals heard about them, read about them, met them, went and saw their work and then wrote about them and made them famous. So that's how uh, Damien became famous. Unfortunately, there was, I mean, unfortunately in the sense that she doesn't receive the acclaim that she should, Uh, Mother, now St. Marianne Cope. Uh, when Father Damien needed help with the patients, with the residents, he asked all sorts of people if they would go, and Mother Marianne, now St. Mary Marianne Cope, of the Sisters of St. Francis of Syracuse in New York, volunteered to go with five other sisters. And it's interesting that unfortunately, and I said unfortunately because she hasn't received as much of the credit as she should, because in effect, when Father Damien got sick, she was the one who ran the whole place. She was the one who took care of him and everybody else and everything. And it's interesting that Mother Marianne, when she, was, uh, when she had decided to go, she uh, basically told her sisters, I guarantee you, if any of you come with me, none of you will die from leprosy. And to this day, none has. Wow. But, so we have these, these two saints of Hawaii now. Saint Damien and Saint Mary Anne, and unfortunately, most people don't know about Saint Mary Anne, who was quite a, an, an incredible uh, figure, both as a woman and as a woman religious, in terms of what she did uh, on that island.
0: Wow! So Father Damien worked with people who suffered from leprosy, and at what point was the process for him being recognized as saint? Was there a miracle that happened that started that process for him? Well,
1: again, um, it's not necessarily a miracle, but favors and graces granted by God through his intercession. In other words, you have to understand these favors and these graces are miracles because they're at the request of the faithful and God answers and grants the favor, the, mir- uh, the request, uh, the request the gr- or the grace. But the thing is, is that one of them is chosen because it can meet the criterion of a canonical process or trial. For a miracle, in other words, these are all miracles. These graces or favors. Whenever you ask God for something and your favor is granted, or your grace is granted, it, it is a miracle. God is intervening in your life and granting what you've requested. Whereas a miracle is uh, um, has certain criterion. In other words, that uh, certain criteria that are required in order for it to go through the full canonical, legal, church process, if you will, okay? That's the distinction. So there were a lot of reports of graces and favors granted through the intercession of Father Damien, which enabled the bishop to conclude that since there is this reputation of holiness and this reputation of intercessory power, I can start his cause. Of course, in those days, the cause was started by the Holy See. It was still started under the old legislation Whereas now, since 1983, causes are started by the local bishop.
0: And so I read with Father Damien that there was a woman who had been diagnosed with a rare lung cancer and had three metastasized tumors. And she alleged she went to for intercession with Father Damien. She actually went to his grave site. And then on subsequent x-rays, the tumors and masses were getting smaller and smaller until they were completely gone. And in that case, and this is one of many examples it sounds like where there are medical, just, you know, no explanation. Tell us about that process for when, when those types of things happen, um, are there doctors at the Vatican that look into this? I mean, how do, you, how do you say, you know what, how do you actually test that criteria of whether this was a, a physical healing that you can attribute to a saint?
1: Well, the process starts at the local level. In other words, when a cause is started for the beatification and canonization of someone, there is a, if you will, a lawyer or an advocate for the cause, for the petitioner of the cause, called the postulator. And the postulator is the one who has the responsibility to keep his or her ears open to see, or to hear rather, if there are any miracles that could stand a canonical trial. And so people are encouraged to send in the information, I had this miracle from Father Damien, or through Father Damien's intercession. And then it's the responsibility of the advocate or the lawyer of the cause to look into this case and see if it has some substance. In other words, number one, if it has substance, but number two, if that substance can be proven in a trial, It's not simply a question of their substance because there are many miracles that cannot be proven through a canonical trial because a canonical trial has very many uh, requirements for it to go through. So basically what happens is the process on the miracle starts in the diocese where the miracle took place because the presumption of law is is where the miracle took place is where your evidence is going to be. And so once again, Upon the request of the postulator or the lawyer for the case, the bishop starts the process on the miracle. But again, he can only start the process on the miracle if he's got a uh, fulfilled a requirement. In other words, it's called fumus boni uris. In other words, fumus means the smoke and boni iuris means good law, the smoke of good law. If you want in gross terms, it means where there's smoke, there's fire. Mm. And so the bishop has to verify that there's some possibility of success before he starts this process. And the way he does that, as you mentioned, is on the local level, he gets doctors to study the material. Now, it's very important to realize that a miracle has two elements. There's a scientific element and a theological element. The 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 scientific element is that there is no human explanation for what happened. And so therefore, you never ask the doctor, is it a miracle? You ask the doctor, what is the diagnosis? What is the prognosis? What was the therapy used? And doctor, can you explain the patient's condition from the therapy that was used? Once the doctor says, I can explain it, the case is gone. Once he says, I can't explain it, then you go to the next step to verify the theological element, which is where the miracle is. In other words, can you prove that at the moment this scientifically inexplicable fact took place, someone requested the prayer or the intercession of the candidate for canonization? So for example, in the case of Mother Teresa in the miracle for her canonization, there was a fellow who had about 12 to 15 lesions in his brain. Uh, and they were blocking the exit of the fluid that circulates around the brain and keeps the brain moist and functioning. And so this person was taken um, in in an emergency way up to the operating room, but the doctor, the neurosurgeon, couldn't operate on him to drain this liquid because he he couldn't be put under anesthesia because he had a defective trachea And the uh, anesthesiologist said, look, I'm not gonna risk doing this because I could kill him right here and now with this defective trachea. We have to get a specialist and get him in here. So when the neurosurgeon went out to make a phone call to find the expert in uh, tracheotomies, or rather, I'm sorry, in in esophageal uh, realities or questions, We were able to verify that at that very moment on the other side of town in Santos, Brazil, his wife was crying in the parish church and she uh, was approached by the pastor who asked what was going on. And when she told him that her husband was being operated at that very moment, the pastor said, well, let us pray for the intercession of Mother Teresa. And when the neurosurgeon walked back into the operating room, the patient who was basically in a coma just at the moment, or just practically at the moment of death, uh, was awake and sitting up on the table and saying, what am I doing here? So what we had to do was coordinate the scientifically inexplicable fact that the water in his brain suddenly disappeared by itself with the fact that at that very moment, his wife and the priest were praying for the intercession of Mother Teresa. And there is where the miracle lies, proving cause and effect between asking for Mother Teresa's intercession and the person being cured.
0: Uh, and there's records of this, like this, this is documented medically, like the doctor- It has doc- to be,
1: and, it has to be. And it's not otherwise, just- later- it's not, it's, Otherwise it's never used. Right. In other words, see the whole idea is to prove this in the external forum. In other words, it has to be measurable, it has to be scientific, it has to be factual. It can't be conjecture, it can't be what we call a moral miracle. It has to be an actual physical miracle, which is verifiable and measurable, both scientifically and juridically.
0: And it's not just one or two doctors, right? Um, Is there a term, is it the consultivo, or what's the... uh... There's a term for all the doctors I read that... uh, Well,
1: yeah, it's called the medical board, the consulta medica in Italian, or what is best translated in English as the medical board. But that's on the Roman level, because what happens is on the local level, all the evidence for and against the case is gathered during the trial. And then the bishop sends all of the evidence to Rome, and then it's studied Now, when it gets to Rome, the first thing is studied by the medical board, a group of seven men and women who examine the case to see if there is indeed, or if there is not, a scientific explanation for what happened. Obviously, if they say there's no scientific explanation, then it goes to the theological consultors, who are the ones to determine whether there is the theological element, in other words, the cause and effect between requesting the intercession and the change in the person's condition. And then finally, it goes to the cardinals and the bishops who study the entire case and make recommendations to the Holy Father, who then makes the final decision as to whether the case is a bona fide miracle or not.
0: Wow. I, man, I am just so blown away that there are... Now, these miracles are by... I guess by nature, they're, they're, they're rare, right? I mean, you guys get lots of claims and these th- very few hold stand up to scrutiny, right? Well,
1: you know, we don't get a lot of the claims. We, get the few, we only get the ones in Rome that make it through the local process, which means that the bishop has determined that there's a good chance of success. In other words, even in civil law or penal law, you don't start a process unless there's evidence uh, that involves a person in a crime, if you will, or in some sort of civil action. You know, you just don't start a process because you have nothing to do during the weekday. Uh, There has to be a reason. This fumus boni juris, this smoke of good law, this chance of success. uh, I think that, um, you know, that that a judge, uh, uh, you know, has to make that decision before he goes to trial, that there is a chance of success in the sense that, there is evidence of a potential crime and then we're going to examine it juridically and come to a conclusion, whether it's a crime, it's a penal case, or a civil case, whatever. The same thing in a cause of canonization, the Holy See or the Congregation for the Causes of Saints obviously receives those cases that have gone through the local process, the local scrutiny. Now, there were many times when people would write to the congregation about cases, but we would send that right back to the bishop and say, So-and-so has referred to us for this supposed miracle through the intercession of a candidate whose cause is started in your diocese. And then we would leave it up to the bishop to decide whether to examine it or not.
0: And uh, what is, so now once it makes it to Rome and it passes muster, what is the final process as it gets investigated? Sorry, what's that? What is the final, so after it passes the local level and it's referred up to Rome and it's meeting all the criteria, what is the final step? Uh, in 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 this canonization process.
1: Well, in other words, in order for someone to be beatified, in other words, declared blessed, if the person is a martyr, it's simply the declaration by the Holy Father that the person is a true martyr. If the person lived a life of heroic virtue or offered his or her life in love for someone else and died unexpectedly, then one miracle after that person's death, granted by God through his intercession, is required for beatification. Whereas all those who have been declared blessed, martyrs, heroic virtues, and offering of life, one miracle after the date of beatification is required for that person's canonization.
0: And then once it is, uh, if those miracles are then documented, is it, Is there someone who signs off on it and then it's submitted to the Holy Father in that case? Or how does that final step work?
1: Well, in the case of a martyr, the person can be beatified immediately. The bishop writes to the Holy Father basically and says, Holy Father, you have declared this candidate, this servant of God, but now is called venerable servant of God, to be a true martyr. I request that you give permission for him to be beatified. And the same thing happens once the others uh, have met the requirements. In other words, that the Holy Father has confirmed heroic virtue or offering of life, and then one miracle has been approved. Again, the bishop writes and says, Holy Father, the criterion for beatification have have been met. Would you permit the beatification, please? In terms of canonization, uh, there's basically, what happens is when the miracle is approved for the blessed for canonization, The Holy Father holds what's called a consistory. You might have remembered that the Pope just recently had a consistory for the naming of new cardinals. In other words, a consistory is either a public or a private meeting in which the Pope does private business or public business with the cardinals and the bishops who are near or in the city of Rome. That's called a consistory. So there is a consistory for canonization in which the Holy Father, before he proceeds to canonization, asks the opinion of the cardinals and the bishops who are living in the city of Rome. Um, You just, you may remember also the famous consistory for the saints when Pope Benedict announced at the end of that consistory his intention to resign. That was at a a consistory for saints, which honestly everybody thought would just be a simple ordinary consistory in -hmm. which the naming of 800 saints uh, would uh, be approved by Pope Benedict, and, and that would be the end of that. But then, of course, you know that at the end of that consistory, Pope Benedict announced his intention to resign the following February twenty uh, eighth, and so of course that shook up everybody. Yeah, but that's a consistory.
0: Well, wow. and how long would you say if you if you could average it? Does it how long does it take typically for this entire canonization process? This, this takes years, right? This is impossible.
1: Not a- Impossible to say, because there are many causes at the congregation in which there's no miracle for beatification or no miracle for canonization, and the cause is blocked, stopped because there's no, the requirements for beatification or the requirements for canonization have not been met. Just recently, there's been a book that has come out, I forget the name of the author, but they did a piece of it on, on the um, on the, uh, in the New York Times, I believe this past week and they spoke about the fact that this American cause of Emil Capon, who was a, a priest, uh, chaplain during the Korean War, and how his cause isn't going forward because there is, you know, you need uh, recommendations and you need money and all. This is all nonsense. A person who is a sports writer, who writes a book, is kind of like me writing a book on techniques of neurosurgical operations. It has nothing to do with the reality of the situation. Causes don't go ahead simply because the requirements are not met. And in most cases, the reason why a cause doesn't go through is because the miracle has not occurred.
0: See, and I think that's so interesting for people who listen and go, man, this sounds like a bunch of just, you know, hooey, I cannot believe, you know, I have trouble believing in miracles. I personally was just fascinated by how rigorous this process was. And even reading, in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, um, as you often do, Father, but uh, is uh, the term devil's advocate originates from this process, correct? Yes,
1: it does. I got one right. All right. (laughs) Okay, but the, the whole idea is now with the new legislation, the mentality is, has to be, everyone is a devil's advocate. Because no one has a right to be canonized. And so when we talk about the process in the local church, it is not the process of collecting evidence so that the person can be canonized. It's the process of gaining evidence for and against the canonization so that the authorities in Rome can make an informed decision as to whether the person should be beatified and canonized. So in other words, starting from the bishop, all the priests and lay people involved in the process in the local church, all of the bishops and cardinals and priests and lay people involved in the process in Rome are all devil's advocates.
0: Wow. Okay, I have so many questions, so I want to do as much of a lightning round as I can on this. Um, all right, first question that just comes to mind here: You mentioned the criteria for miracles. It, it's physical. It's attributable to the saint. Um, this, you know, we're not talking emotional healing here. I can't be. A, I can't submit a cause if I if people say I was a jerk and now I'm really nice. Well, there are
1: a lot of people, for example, who have argued or have asked the congregation, well, why can't you accept a miracle through the intercession of someone for a drug addict or an alcoholic, for example, who's reformed Mm. or whatever? Uh, These are referred to as moral miracles. And since they're not measurable, they're not confirmable, Right. Uh, the congregation has never accepted these moral or does not accept the moral of miracles, not denying the fact that they could be miracles.
0: Absolutely. No. Abs- uh, yeah. Okay. No, absolutely. We're not
1: denying the fact that they could be miracles, but we're just saying that the, the congregation says that for canonization and beatification, a physical, measurable uh, reality is required.
0: Got it. Now, here's my question. Say in the case I mentioned of the woman in Hawaii and... Um, her three tumors disappeared. And for the next three decades, that's just considered a miracle. And then one day we discover that a severe influenza infection is correlated with cancer disappearing. Um, and now we find a new exp- a new scientific explanation. Would that go back and retroactively uh, affect the- That's a candidate? fallacy.
1: It's a fallacy because the miracle is not, is in the fact that at the moment- She requested the intercession of Father Damien. Her situation changed radically.
0: But couldn't that be coincidental, though? I mean, like I get you. The timing is obviously interesting. But I know in this case, they were talking, you know, I I was impressed that the questions you were asking were, okay, what was the treatment prior? You know, could the radiation treatment that she got on her hip for a hip replacement have affected that?
1: If you're talking about the person whom I think you're talking about who has become a very dear friend of mine, who is still living, and I think she's gotta be close to 95. Wow, that's awesome. uh, Audrey. uh, Actually, uh, there was a problem as to the direct and immediate uh, cause and effect between her prayer to Father Damien and the intercession. Yep. And we were able to verify it. Um, The congregation asked me to go back to Hawaii to run a special process to see if we could verify the moment that this, this this event, this miracle, that this event took place, which could be declared a miracle. And basically what it was is simply when she went to her doctor, the doctor told her the tumors were, the cancer was completely metastasized, had infiltrated her brain, and there was nothing else to do except now you can go home and say goodbye to your husband and your children and prepare your funeral. and. Audrey told me very clearly, she said, I banged on the desk and I said, I'm going to Father Damien. And the next time she saw her doctor, she was all of the cancer was completely gone and has never returned to this day. And be it be clear that the cancer that she had was not a typical cancer. It was a very rare form yes. of violent, virulent cancer.
0: Got it. No, that makes see,
1: sense. To get back to your point, which many people say, you know, it's a fallacy because a miracle is a theological term. Okay, and so the change in the person's condition has to be shown to have happened at the very moment that the intercession was asked. Now you say, and I think it's a valid point. You say, could it be a coincidence? Well, it could It'd be a pretty cold day in hell if you would ask me that something incredible like that would happen. Because here we're not talking about a broken fingernail or, um, you know, a, a simple cold. We're talking about a life-threatening situation that's verified by, uh, by the doctors to be a life-threatening situation.
0: Totally. So are there things that have happened where, are, have there been miracles or series of miracles that at the time science did not have an explanation for and now science might um is that now are viewed as like oh like you know like if someone was praying to a saint and then they happened to drink orange juice and they were suffering from scurvy and now we know that vitamin c is what cured it so i know that's a bit facetious but uh are there is there anything like that in the in the history
1: No, there isn't. But to get to your example, the fact of simply drinking vitamin C might not necessarily have cured that person's scurvy. Remember, medicine is an art, not a science. And in other words, the orange juice that I drink could kill me because I have an allergy, but could cure or help to cure you from scurvy because it's good for you. Uh, You know, Say, for for example, at this moment with the the coronavirus vaccine, everybody is so upset about the, the two people in England who had that of reaction to, mm-hmm. the, um, to, the, uh, um, to the vaccine, well, that's normal. I mean, that has to be expected. That's why when a person goes to the doctor, he asks the doctor, could I, should I take the vaccine? And then when the person takes the vaccine, watches himself, herself, and then is in touch with the doctor. In other words, you don't take it and run. There has to be this kind of precaution because medicine you know, is an art, it's not a science. We know very well that, uh, um, for example, personal thing, I can't take statins. I, I am just intolerant of statins. Mm. So uh, statins that help so many people with cholesterol, triglycerides and all this kind of stuff would kill me.
0: Now, I see. I see what you're saying, and so I guess the bottom line is that But the point that th- I'm timing I to make is important. If I can make this point, uh, Ryan,
1: uh, is this: What you're saying is not necessarily untrue. You know? Yeah, it could be a coincidence. Strange and rare, perhaps, but it could happen, couldn't it? And that's where I think it's something that the church cannot be afraid to say, is that this is also a moment of faith. Mm. That it's, it's a commitment of belief that God exists, that he can intervene in human affairs, and that he does. Yeah. And so when the church canonizes someone, it is a question of faith. Yes, That is why a canonization by the Holy Father is considered to be an act of inf- papal infallibility. And as a matter of fact, even when the Pope canonizes, the very words that he uses to declare someone as a saint is we define and we declare, which are the traditional words of an infallible proclamation. You know, so many people uh, were scanning the internet to try to find about papal infallibility when Pope Francis spoke about the whole question of civil unions. Well, it's not part of papal infallibility. The Pope has to be very clear and specific that he is teaching infallibly, or it's part of the authentic teaching of the church of centuries. So in other words, Pope can't wake up this morning and say, I declare it's a sunny day in the midst of uh, a huge... Uh, torrential downpour, as absurd as that example is. Uh, So canonization is part of papal infallibility because it, as Pope Benedict said when he was still Joseph Ratzinger, indirectly touches the faith. Not directly, indirectly, because it's an example of Christian life to follow. Because if we follow this person, we'll get where the person is. In other words, in heaven because that person followed Christ most closely. So what I can say to you with honesty and courage, and no fear of it, but there's also an element of faith in this whole process.
0: That makes sense. And obviously, You're maybe the Pope—
1: Believing in God's love for us, that God raises up these people for our imitation, and not just Catholics' imitation. You want to tell me that someone like Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa uh, are people just for Catholics?
0: Yeah, no, of course not. I oh, uh, well, it's funny uh, you, me- you mentioned a uh, you can't declare sunny over rainy day. You, uh, maybe you haven't been to a tent revival meeting, you know, in the in the Protestant faith where you can name it and claim it. So it's uh, um, people. Well, actually- I was
1: involved. I was involved with the Catholic uh, the Catholic Charismatic movement, which is an offshoot of the Catholic, of the Protestant Pentecostal movement, and uh, I was the chaplain for one of those groups, and so we were involved in all of those kinds of things, and oh, so wow. I know where you're coming from.
0: Okay. No, totally. Um, All right. So another quick question here. Uh, Are there examples in the literature of these medical miracles of regenerative miracles at all? Um, Either metal disappearing, um, bones healing back or uh, anything that is like just way out there?
1: You mean are there examples, or are they printed out there?
0: Yeah, meaning like, are is there in, in your overseeing of this evidence? Have you seen evidence for miracles of bones that were broken suddenly mended back together, or? Um, oh, you know.
1: I'll give you an, I'll give you an example of an Indian case uh, from India. Yeah. Uh, a little child that was four or five years old was brought to the tomb of the local uh, candidate, if you will, for canonization, who now has been declared a saint. And without getting too medically specific, you know how our foot goes, our leg goes down, Mm
0: -hmm. and then the
1: foot goes this way. And there are bones and joints and things that make the foot move to the left and to the right, up and down, you know, but basically, the foot goes out perpendicular from the leg, correct? We, We wrote that much? Well, the boy had the foot joined to the side of his leg, In other words, it wasn't in the form of an L, a normal L as we would have with our leg and our foot, but it was an L to the right side of the leg. And of course the boy couldn't walk. And since he was so young, they weren't prepared to operate on him yet. And the mother and father took him to the tomb of of the, the now saint. And uh, they prayed, and they went home. And the next morning, when the boy woke up, the foot was completely normal.
0: And that process survived the whole, obviously the investigation. I mean, how would you even go about well, uh, verifying that?
1: I, I I coined a term which some some use now, a photographic miracle. In other words, you have a picture before, a medical verified x-ray, okay? Yeah, not a picture before. And a picture after, and basically the, uh, the all of the doctors said, "What do you want us to say?"
0: <laughs> yeah. When 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 would this happen? Well, for example,
1: if you'll forgive me, the case of the miracle for the uh, beatification of Mother Teresa, having this woman who had a, um, a they called it a tumefaction because it was a tumor in the making, and so they called it a tumefaction, and it was about the size of a soccer ball. And it was inside in her stomach, in other, in other words, there was no way it could come out without her hemorrhaging to death. And basically uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon on the first anniversary of Mother Teresa's death, the sisters gathered over her bedside because they felt that they knew that she wasn't going to live very much longer. And they prayed for Mother Teresa's intercession. They put a miraculous medal which Mother was infamous for distributing to everybody she met. She would pull out of this deep pocket one of these miraculous medals and she'd hand it to everybody she met. These miraculous, this miraculous medal that had been put on her body as she lay in state uh, in India. And at one o'clock in the morning, the woman was seen again by the sisters going to get water. And she was as flat as the day she was born. Wow. And three days, four days later, she said, I'm fine. What am I doing here? And she went home.
0: Amazing. So uh,
1: we have cases like that, you know, that are uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, Another case, for example, was for the beatification of Solanas Casey of Detroit, a Capuchin priest, and the woman who was visiting I forget now, I think it was either Colombia or Paraguay, but I think it was Paraguay. At any rate, the Archdiocese of Detroit had a mission down there, and one of their priests was working in the mission and brought some of the people up to visit Detroit, to visit the tomb of Father Solanus Casey, who was has great devotion uh, and following in uh, Detroit. And she had a genetic disease, and basically she was suffering from what they call ictus vulgaris, in other words, her skin, ictus, means fish, and vulgaris means vulgar. In other words, her uh, skin was like the scales of fish, fish scales. And it's very painful, and there's absolutely nothing they can do for it because it's a genetic disease. Yeah. When she went to the tomb of Father Solanus Casey, she prayed, and as she was getting up, she said, now this is in not, when it was not expected or no one was talking about a miracle, she just got up and she said, she started to cry that she was feeling this tremendous heat all over her body. And they took her up to a room upstairs. And as they were talking to her, the scales started to fall off and they asked her what happened. And she said, well, I was praying for my family. And when I got up I heard a voice say to me, what will you ask for yourself? Mm. And she said, so I knelt down again, I prayed and I said, well, help my, my skin, help my condition. At any rate, uh, she's perfectly normal. Her skin is, I met her at the beatification ceremony, and <laughs> to tell you the truth, her skin is more beautiful and fair than mine. Now, it's interesting that one of the world's leading experts in this disease is in Chicago. It's a Jewish doctor who asked us to participate in the process, and we permitted him because there was nobody more qualified than he is to give us an evaluation a study and an opinion and literally the doctor the Jewish doctor said you know there is no scientific explanation for what has happened people wow. can get better for a month or two months but not 3 years 5 years 7 years and basically what we had to do was pinpoint the diagnosis because she still has the defective gene right that's not changed but what is changed is the fact that the effects of the gene are turned off, so yeah. she has no more effects of this defective gene. And I guess it's now nine years, almost ten years, and she's still fine.
0: Wow! That's, how come we don't? These are so many ins, incredible stories and inspiring stories. And the church is so well recognized. I mean, it's a large entity, you know, historical and and huge and, and influential. How come there's so much discussion? If, if this is all out there and these, you know, this is available for you know, public knowledge of these miracles, how come, how come this is not talked about more? Why isn't this discussed? I feel like because this is so- They're sorry. not out there. It's not, what do you mean it's not out there?
1: They're not out there because, un- well, fortunately or unfortunately, or I should say fortunately and unfortunately, <laughs> the laws of privacy enter in here. And so to say a person's name is to violate that person's privacy. And what's going to happen is I think eventually down the road, the congregation and also the local churches are going to have to face the issue, what do we do to protect this individual's privacy? Someone who has been granted a miracle.
0: Yeah. But even just knowing no, that the there, church... there
1: is a, I'm sorry, there, there is a, a juridical way that that can be done by blocking out the person's name. That's true. Uh, but this whole question of, you know, privacy goes far beyond just the juridical, civil uh, question. It goes also on, the, on a moral question of the person's right to privacy. Uh, because you can imagine how these people would be invaded, bombarded by all sorts of people trying to write books and, like yourself, do interviews, you know. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a touchy question. It's, it's uh, a question that goes beyond the civil and juridical uh, questions to also a moral question about the privacy of an individual.
0: Yeah. And it's, and I could see it as a, as if someone was an agnostic skeptic, they could go, well, you know, if the whole point of God is to make himself known and be known and to have fellowship with his creation, why wouldn't he want these incredible interventions from heaven to be made seen by as many people as possible and I would think that would be something that, like, even you mentioned the the gentle, the, the boy in India. I go that would have to spread, right? I mean, there, if you if there was a kid with that big of a, a, a physical of a of an issue that was so obvious that suddenly is gone, I mean, wouldn't that take off? Like, wouldn't that be like a brush fire, and everyone would be? I grant it. India is a very big place. And so uh, I, I get that, but I just thought, in man, very, some of these
1: in a very un-Catholic country. So it's not that the Catholic communities are right. large. That's a great point. They would <laughs> spread to, let's say, the mass of the population. Um, you know, it's it's uh, there has been uh, there have been four or five volumes put out by an Andreas Resch. I knew Andreas because he was involved in investigating the paranormal. And so he was given permission to put out about five, I think about four or five volumes uh, on some of these miracle cases that have happened. Uh, I haven't taken a look at these volumes in a long time. So I really, you know, can't remember exactly how many he goes into, but I do know that, you know, he stopped writing, I think in about the mid 1990s because he would have been a, a considerable age at that point, but You know, part of the problem of canonization is, remember when I said a saint has two eyes, imitation and intercession. The main purpose of a saint is imitation. But unfortunately, too much emphasis is put on intercession, on miracles, because basically, we're weak. We need our faith to be encouraged and strengthened. And oftentimes, naturally speaking, miracles, these kinds of cases, would do it. But then the danger is is that these kinds of cases can almost become a a superstition, if you will, Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: to a certain extent. And I have to qualify when I say a superstition because the reality of what they are and approval by the church, of course, precludes or excludes superstition. But, you know, people demanding this kind of magic or extraordinary, if you will, confirmation from God of his existence uh, you know, it's that famous story about uh, where uh, where was God? Was God in the earthquake? Was God in the huge fire? Um, the Elijah story. Fire, or was he in the whispering wind? I believe it was Moses, if I remember correctly. It was
0: Elijah in the cave. Anywhere? Elijah in
1: the cave thank you that, that, that's a slap in my face
0: I know I'm uh, sorry I've never been able to correct a priest in a theological discussion well, so I'm glad is you that, that a miracle
1: I, I, don't in, claim, can I? I don't claim to be infallible on any level in any manner shape or form
0: is this a moral uh, miracle can I put forward a cause now can you oversee my application
1: well if you'd like to be a martyr it might be easier for <laughs> you right?
0: no 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 I'm good I'm I, the but, Lord has not called me to martyrdom you have enough trouble
1: trying to live a virtuous life <laughs> okay. Um, so, I mean, where was God? God was in the whisper of the wind, in the silent, quiet sound of the, of the wind. And I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, we don't look for God in the whisper of our lives. We look for God in, in these extraordinary events. And then when they don't happen, our faith gets, our faith gets weak or it gets mm. uh, questioned. So I think one of the important things to keep in mind about causes of beatification and canonization is that they're about imitation. That's why, for example, the Catholic Church has this ancient tradition of baptizing its children with the name of saints. In other words, people whom they can imitate and people who there can intercede for them and protect them and help them along life. Because basically the Catholic Church believes in what's called the communion of saints. In other words, that we believe that we here on earth are in union with those who are in heaven and those who are on their way to heaven in what we call purgatory. And that this communion makes us one big family and that we can pray for each other and that we love each other and care for each other. And so canonization is offering to the faithful these extraordinary examples of people who uh, stood out in their living the Catholic faith, either in martyrdom or in heroic virtue, or in the offering of their lives. And therefore, as part of the communion of saints, as part of our family, they can pray with us to God in our moments of need.
0: Yeah. Um, and also, it's fair to say, too, real quick, that for those doubting even this process, they could say, look, what would be the incentive of the church to approve something that's not real? I mean, the, the whole it would, it would make everyone look bad. It would... You know, every incentive is on making this thorough because the church has no interest in, you know, venerating something that didn't happen. And to be fair, you guys are very, uh, very uh, discerning, right? Is it true that a, a majority of cases that get submitted don't make it, don't stand up to the scrutiny, right?
1: Well, if anything, I'd say that while I call this one of the most democratic processes in the church, I would also call it one of the most collegial processes, I mean, there are so many people involved at in so many different levels, crisscrossing in competencies, in checking, in controlling, uh, that I perceive it as impossible to cheat or to get someone through, as was suggested in this book, for uh, political or whatever kinds of reasons you can, you can think of. I mean, you know, after 38 years of service, I never saw such a thing, nor did I see such a thing that money got a cause through. Such, such nonsense. I think only people who are not involved in the causes can actually make those kinds of absurd claims. Um, you know, that, that, uh, the, it's, it's just wild. It really is to sit back and watch, you know, yeah. uh, to read some of this nonsense that, that sells as literature.
0: I, uh, I was reading in an article that said that, uh, Pope John Paul II had said that, um, the miracles were becoming less and less common and that he was acknowledging that. Is that something that is, is that because of higher standards now that we know more about science, et cetera, or is there a belief that there's maybe less frequent miracles happening? Have you noticed anything like that as far as a trend or anything?
1: Well, I, I, I certainly agree with Pope John Paul II, but I agree with him on two levels. The first level, I think, is that there are fewer miracles because the standards have gotten much more strict. Yeah. In other words, the requirement for clear, obvious, and irrefutable evidence on the part of the medical team uh, has been has increased. And the congregation uh, about two or three years ago published Uh, a document for the medical board on how they are to proceed, tightening up according to what has become the customary practice of the medical board and by making it law. So it's been a a well-found change in this more strict code, uh, if you will, of behavior on the part of the medical board and in Rome and on the part of the doctors in the local churches when they're involved in these miracle cases. And the second reason I think is also for a faith reason. I think that people are praying less. Uh, I think they're putting more faith and trust in uh, doctors and nurses and hospitals and surgeries and medicines. And almost like, you know, in a certain sense, it's kind of like our attitude now towards the COVID virus vaccine, this miracle drug is going to free us from this virus, and I pray God that it does. And honestly, as a seventy-two-year-old potential victim, I hope to be among the first to be able to get it. I'll take it right away. Um, but you know, the danger is is that we look at this as kind of like, uh, you know, another way of resolving our problem, and not looking at, at the deeper meaning of what's going on. You know, this this opportunity to, to rethink so many things we took for granted. Mm. You know it's interesting, I, I, it's, it's a personal reflection if you'll forgive me and permit me, Ryan.
0: Please.
1: It's interesting that the two great viruses, if you will, apart from the Ebola, which was kind of and the SARS, which really didn't, I don't think, took out that, that many victims, as did the AIDS virus, uh, the HIV and the AIDS virus, and this um, coronavirus. They're both viruses, the AIDS and the coronavirus, that affect human intimacy, the thing that the human person needs the most. And I'm not just—I'm not talking about sexual intimacy. I'm talking about love and relations and relationships. Uh, you know, the intimacy of closeness, of handshake, of hug, of kisses. Um, it's interesting that these these two viruses. That, if I'm not mistaken, in in terms of history are, are two of the most uh, virulent viruses to hit the population, the AIDS virus and the coronavirus that has hit the entire uh, population. Uh, it's interesting to me, and maybe you, you, want, you want to correct me again. That's fine. Go ahead and do it if you don't agree or you have an idea. Don't smile like that. Uh, is that it's affected human intimacy.
0: Yeah. No, it has. Um, I mean, it's a. It is strange to see people wearing masks, not smiling at each other, not hugging. It's a very. We do live in. We do live in strange times. Um, right. You
1: you mentioned you know, you praying. Can't shake someone's hand without risking. Yeah.
0: No, absolutely. Um,
1: so at any rate, so what I was trying to say was, is that you know this could and should be an opportunity, uh, not to uh, think in some absurd way that God sent the AIDS virus or the coronavirus as a punishment for mankind. But we can't dismiss the fact that God does allow these things to happen. And it's St. Thomas called it God's permissive will. He doesn't will it, but he permits it because nothing can happen that he doesn't at least allow. And so this is an opportunity for us to, I think, ask, you know, what, what is, what can we learn from this? What is God saying to us in all of this? So in terms of the miracles being on the decrease, because people
0: are not praying. So on that note about praying, this is something that I think is really interesting. So when we talk about saints in the church, this is an area of division among Protestants and Catholics, is that I think from the, the perception is that these, in the Catholic faith is the saint is asked to intercede God. And I know it's important to say that God is the one granting the miracle, not the saint themselves. And I know that, and I know in a lot of cases it can, um, some of the Protestant critique can come across as, oh, well Catholics are, you know, worshiping or praying to a saint, but that's actually not what's happening. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the,
1: uh, true. we worship only God. We venerate uh, everyone else because only God, father, son, and Holy spirit has the right to, uh, adoration uh, uh, on the part of the faithful so I ex- mentioned before the whole doc- Catholic doctrine of communion of Saints that we are in union with one another and maybe perhaps Catholic doctrine should look at the issue in terms of there is a danger on a popular piety level to pray to someone you know for example you see the many Italians will pray to Saint Anthony or Uh, you know, they'll be especially close to St. Joseph. The Irish will be especially close to uh, St. Patrick, Mm -hmm. you know, as if they like semi-gods or other gods. Their their direct line to God is through St. Patrick or St. Anthony, Uh, which, of course, is not true at all. But unfortunately, this is a question of popular piety, which always has to be corrected, and that's the job of the local pastors and priests to do that. So, I mean, the whole issue then should be, could we not then talk about, communion with the very word to the communion of saints, the word communion means cum unio, to be in union with. And if we're in union with, for example, we're in union with our family because of blood relations, you know, we talk to each other. We ask each other for help. Could we not speak of the same thing with saints that we don't pray to the saints. We ask them to pray with us to God. Um, another issue with Protestants and Catholics is this whole question of intercession. mm mm-hmm. Why ask someone to intercede when you can go directly to Jesus Christ, who is God, man? Well, the church has never said, don't go to Jesus Christ, go to your local saint or your preferred saint. Because what (laughs) has always got to be kept in mind is that it is Jesus Christ who is the one mediator between God and man. But the issue too, I I remember once there was a, a group of Protestant ministers came to the congregation. They were brought by the, um, uh, the Vatican Office for Christian Unity, and they asked me to give them a talk about the process of canonization. And so once I mentioned uh, intercession imitation, you know, and I said, well, I said, it's interesting that St. Paul, in his letters, says very clearly, be imitators of me. And I remember this one Protestant minister looked at me with a scowl face saying, Well, I have something to say about that. Well, of course, I think the other ministers kind of like, you know, calmed him down and basically, you know, told him this is not the place. But when St. Paul uses that expression, be imitators of me, obviously he's not saying be imitators of Paul, you know, me, Paul. He's saying be imitators of me because I imitate Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so what we have to be careful of is not to... Uh, base our faith and our theology on words which don't always express the true or full concept of what we're doing. So that's why, for example, we make the distinction between adoration of God and veneration of the Blessed Mother and saints. In other words, we venerate them, we honor them in a special way, but we do not give veneration to God. We give adoration to God and worship to God and God alone.
0: Got it. So... Would you say to a Protestant then is that, would the Catholic response be, well, say there's someone in your community who for whatever reason or whatever circumstances happens to have prayed for the sick and seen uh, uh, a disproportionate share of healings. A Protestant would not be opposed to asking that person to pray for them. And so the Catholic response is, well, if there is a saint who is associated with a particular miracle that maybe you are contending for or seeking, that is someone that you would want, just like on earth, you would want praying for you. You would want that person who has a demonstrated life of you know excellence in this area, you would ask them to pray for you in heaven. And is that no, the no response?
1: One, I mean, no one can deny that you know, others have good and holy people in them. Uh, for example, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, uh, who was known to be a very good and a very holy person and who wrote beautiful theological works. For example, the Anglican uh, people, uh, the people of the Anglican faith who died in Africa when Pope Paul VI went down to canonize uh, some uh, Catholic saints, uh, spoke about how can we not talk about our Anglican brothers and sisters who also accepted martyrdom for the faith. The Catholic Church isn't saying that uh, it's got the um, uh, monopoly on holiness. But what the Catholic Church is saying is that, that God offers to all of us these role models, if you will, to imitate because they followed Christ more closely than the rest of us. And the reason why they followed Christ more closely was because God gave them the grace to do that so that they could stand out for us, if you will, as signposts on the road to heaven.
0: Got it. So so the idea is that these saints are in heaven alive today, and that you are just like you ask your earthly family to pray with you for things, and you pray to God, you are asking your heavenly the heavenly saints who are up there to pray for you as well. Is that heavenly the...
1: intercessor? It's an analogy that, like all analogies, limp a bit. Okay. Yeah. All analogies are valid, but they all limp. And the limp here is the fact that because they are in heaven, if you will forgive the gross uh, human expression, they have God's ear. Yeah. In other words, they're in his presence. They share in God's holiness by being in the presence of his face. They see him face to face. And therefore, they share in a special particular way in God's holiness because they have achieved the goal. So while you're right uh, in that analogy, it limps in that a saint who is canonized is one whom the church confirms that is in heaven. And by that fact, beholds God, beholds God face to face and therefore is different, qualitatively different.
0: Got it. When did this idea of praying to saints for intercession originate? Because I, you mentioned Paul oh, and in one the days thing, of the uh,
1: catacombs. Because
0: <laughs> what I was reading up, I thought it was interesting. On on one hand, we do see examples in Scripture of now in the negative sense. We see Saul conjuring up, you know, Samuel through the witch of Endor. So there's some interaction. There's the parable that Jesus offers with Abraham um, and Lazarus, or uh, as Lazar the rich man and the poor man, um, but The other thing I was curious about is why wouldn't Paul or Peter, uh, in, in their letters say, you know what, like when you pray, make sure you ask Moses to pray for you or Elijah to pray for you or pray for, you know, any of these, you know, Enoch, any of these holy figures that had gone before them. I I, correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't see that in the epistles though, right? We don't see the apostle Paul asking us to beseech the patriarchs to pray for us, do we?
1: Well, you don't you don't see it in specifically ask uh, Moses to pray for you before God, but you see a very clear understanding, even if it's uh, primitive and just beginning, of this concept of we're a family, we're saints, we have to pray for each other. In fact, Paul calls people on earth saints because being baptized with the Holy Spirit, they share already in God's life. And therefore, having... The Holy Spirit within them; they are holy. They are saints, mm-hmm. and so there is this concept in in the uh, in the New Testament about the fact that we are called to be a family, a communion, to pray for each other, to care for one another. As a matter of fact, I think it's Saint Paul who says, "Hey, take care of the, your Christian brothers and sisters first. They're the first ones to take care of. Then worry about the rest." Yeah. So I mean, there's this concept that is growing. And then, you know, as time goes on, uh, specific theological explanations and terms and terminologies and distinctions uh, will be put on things, for better or for worse sometimes, uh, so that these concepts are not really new. So for example, if you go back to some of the early church fathers, which is interesting how now St. John Henry Newman of England uh, came back to the Catholic faith from the Anglican Church, is that reading the Church Fathers, he began to see that the early days of the Church, uh, there was this whole concept of praying for one another and praying to God together as a family. So for example, in the earliest days of the Church, you have some of the Church Fathers saying, look at uh, this one who died, what a wonderful example for you, who probably will be next, And yet, and also the uh, the early Christians gathered at the tombs of these witnesses, these martyrs, uh, in order to celebrate the Eucharist, the liturgy of of God's presence among us in, in the sacrament of Holy Communion. And as a matter of fact, even in today's churches in the Catholic Church, relics of saints will be put in the altars to remind us of the catacomb experience that the masses were originally celebrated on the tombs of the saints because there already, they were aware of the fact that, Hey, look, this one died yesterday. Tomorrow will be my turn. And so therefore there was this concept of imitation. I want to go as faithful as you went. And then there was the idea developed. Pray for me that at the last minute, I don't cheat and run away. So the pro- the concept of imitation and intercession already existed from the earliest days of the church, but it may not have been formulated in that very way, in that very, let say, developed or theological understanding of what's going on or what was happening. It was more of a down-to-earth, everyday common experience of seeing their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, priests, bishops being put to death or... Uh, not denying being put to death rather than denying the faith and therefore knowing that we were a family and that as they were in heaven with Jesus Christ, they could pray with us for me tomorrow when it's my turn.
0: Got it. So the bottom line is that death does not stop the family. Death cannot separate the family that one group may be on earth, the other group's in heaven. And so uh, death death can't stop but the inter-
1: it's interesting to find out what was the, what's the origin of, nobody says anymore, oh, did you hear John died yesterday? No, John passed yesterday. Mm. Passing implies a passing from one life to another. And I wonder where this concept, whether it's a denial of death or whether it is a judeo-christian understanding of death as being a moment of transition from this life to the next i don't yeah. know but i i think that perhaps in the the primal faith level of every human person there's something going on that we no longer at least that i know of people don't yeah. say he died he passed passed away
0: no that's interesting and i and father i appreciate your saying and i think uh protestant listeners would appreciate too that uh, it's cool to hear a priest recognize that even if there's some some small theological disagreements of whether to go straight to Jesus or asking a saint, that there is the issue of uh, neither side wants any adoration to be robbed from God, and that sometimes a particular saint in the process of intercession could uh, un- uninte- incidentally take the place of or become an, uh, 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 a barrier to that intimacy with Christ and take that's on some popular, of that.
1: That's the fault of popular piety. Right. And that's where it's the responsibility of the priests on the, on the front line as a pastor, I knew used to say to correct that. Yeah. So that, that never happens.
0: Got it. Because well, Christ job. is
1: the only mediator between God and man. And so that is the responsibility of the local pastors to make sure that that defect doesn't enter into the, into the spiritual life of any of the faithful,
0: yes, and no, especially
1: I've... of the faithful entrusted to him in a particular parish or community.
0: Absolutely. Well, I uh, I know our, we're running low on time here, um, but I I did want to close on a on an upbeat note, and thank you so much. This has been so interesting. Uh, as someone who has never studied the saints, uh, and obviously we could all use a little dose of inspiration right now. Uh, who are just a few saints that you would say to anyone who's never even explored uh, the life of the faithful? Who are some of your favorite saints whose lives just are inspiring or just people would find really interesting and, and derive a lot of you know, um, you know, blessing from studying right now?
1: Well, certainly on the top of my list would be Mother Teresa. Um, it's just interesting that we have the woman version of St. Francis of Assisi in our time. Uh, And I think that Mother Teresa's message can very easily be lost, how she worked with the poorest of the poor. And, you know, it's one of the rare occasions in sacred scripture when Jesus said, you're going to hell. You know, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me to drink. Mm. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't come to visit me. It's one of the rare times where Jesus says to that person who didn't do that, you're going to hell. And I think Mother Teresa, more than any, more than many saints, male and female, have, apart from Francis of Assisi, of course, um, has brought that so much to light. Then, of course, too, you know, there are so many unsung saints who have died working with COVID patients. Mm. You know, the people who selflessly uh, exposed themselves to risk with uh, the Ebola virus, with the SARS virus, and now with the coronavirus. People who have died uh, to take care of those who were sick or those who were in need of care. These are causes probably that will be starting up soon of men and women who offered their lives and died uh, because of the coronavirus. You know, these are people, as Pope Francis said in his letter, they're next door. You know, they're not up on a pedestal. They're next door, right next door to you. How many of us probably know someone who died taking care of coronavirus patients, uh, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, holiness is right in front of our nose, and we don't even want to see it, or we can't see it.
0: Amen to that. Um, and I just because you know so many. And then I know historically, uh, I've been told there's some really fascinating saint causes from World War Two, uh, as well. Um, are there any from that period? I, I had a friend make sure to, say, to ask you that, and that there were some really interesting ones during that period?
1: Well, there is uh, Emil Kapon, who was from the Korean War, who literally died from diseases that he caught from taking care of uh, not only his men, but also the enemy. There is also Vincent Capodano, who uh, is buried right here in Staten Island in the city of New York uh, who uh, was in um, the Vietnam War, who was shot on the field and instead of going to get himself taken care of, went back on the field to administer the last sacraments to uh, those who were wounded and to comfort also the enemy and he was finally uh, killed uh, on the battlefield. Wow. Um, so there are a couple of those chaplains, you know, whose causes are pending. Um, we can get you a it
0: on YouTube.
1: It's up to the people to bring these cases to the attention of their bishops, not to Rome, because the Vatican doesn't start causes; it's the local bishop that does. And so, the people should write to the local bishop if they know someone who uh, could or should be uh, considered for canonization.
0: Well, I know my producer is going to want to submit my name, obviously, um, and no pressure. I know this takes a while, so please uh, let me know how my application coming. And we'll, for, for the notes on the show, we'll have you prepare a list. Of, well, uh,
1: Unfortunately for you, I'm retired, so I'm going to have to leave <laughs> my successor to, to take care of your cause.
0: All right. Well, I have faith, Father, and uh, we'll take care of that, but get uh, you can get us, uh, can get us end, a list.
1: In the end, there are three things, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love.
0: Amen. I thought you were going to see death and taxes. That's usually how the saying goes. It's two things. So two things are certain in life, death and taxes, right? Um, well, it seems that for a lot of smart
1: people, or at least people who know how to do it, tax, taxes aren't necessarily uh, a problem. That's but death true. is a problem for everyone uh, yeah. uh, without uh, exception.
0: That's true. Well, Father, thank you so much uh, for today and for this conversation. I hope you'll You'll permit us to do it again. I want to pick your brain on so many things, but this is this is crazy. There are miracles out there, holiness next door, and we just got to go dig in and find it. So I so appreciate you, Father, and uh, hopefully you'll come back and see us again.
1: Okay, Ryan, thank you.
0: Absolutely. And thank you for joining us on Kind of Christian. We'll see you next time, folks. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Kind of Christian. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review.